All right, we want to welcome everyone to the CHEST COVID-19 webinar series. Um, again, my name is Dee Dee Gardner. I'm a respiratory therapist and associate professor at Texas State University in San Marcos in Round Rock, Texas. I'm also a member of the Education Committee and the Respiratory Care Network Steering Committee. I'm very excited today to be hosting this webinar where we'll be discussing discharge criteria for the COVID-19 positive patient with our multi multidisciplinary panel who are in the front lines of COVID-19, working through the processes and criteria of discharging these patients or accepting them from the acute care setting. Prior to meeting our panelists, let's just go over a few um, housekeeping rules. One of those is that if you haven't attended the webinars already, um, there's a Q&A box at the bottom of the screen. Please use that to ask questions to our panelists and we'll save those questions towards the end of the webinar. Also, um, we are recording the webinar, so we want you to be aware of that. So let's get started by meeting our panelists. Please introduce yourself, um, and we'll start with Dr. Matthews. Hi there, uh, I'm Ann Matthews. I'm one of the uh, pulmonary and critical care uh, faculty at Duke University Medical Center. Um, I currently have been rounding in uh, two of our ICUs here that have been helping to take care of COVID-19 patients. Hi, I'm Adrian Hickey. I'm the Associate Director for Respiratory Care Services in SUNY Upstate Medical Hospital in Upstate New York in Syracuse. Good afternoon. My name is Andre Herrera-Mendoza. I'm the Market Chief Strategy Officer for Post-Acute Medical in San Antonio, Texas, and we are a licensed acute care long-term hospital and have actively treated 35-plus um, COVID patients. Great. Thank you for introducing yourselves. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, first of all, we will um, have Dr. Matthews uh, present first. I do have a few questions to ask, and so we'll start with our first question. What are the criteria and processes for transitioning a COVID-19 positive patient out of the ICU at your facility? Um, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of background. So most of what I'm going to be talking about is referencing our main uh, academic uh, hospital um, at Duke University Hospital, because that's where I've done predominantly most of my rounding. Um, and this is, this shows a picture here, as you can see, of our Duke Medicine Pavilion, which was an addition um, a couple of years ago to uh, the hospital itself, and is actually an eight-floor critical care and surgery expansion, and it's got about 160 critical care beds. It's a mix of medical, uh, surgical, and uh, neuro ICU. Um, and so this is where predominantly all of our COVID-19 positive critically ill patients are located. So to kind of just briefly kind of go through what the process is for um, transitioning out of the intensive care unit, um, you know, we don't have a strict um, algorithm or guidelines on how to transfer these patients out of the ICU, but in general, you know, we use sort of these, these criteria here where someone's at least been extubated and has been on stable oxygen settings, has been hemodynamically stable uh, off vasoactive agents for at least a period of 24 to 48 hours. That's been sort of a general rule um, for all of our um, uh, critically ill patients. Uh, again, this ends up being a little bit longer for COVID positive patients uh, in particular. Um, and for COVID positive patients, we tend to want uh, them to have sort of stable respiratory symptoms. So, so meaning that they're not, their work of breathing is, is, is sort of settling out. They're not super tachypnic and they're maintaining uh, good oxygenation on 
uh, we have sort of a cutoff of six liters of oxygen um, or less. I would say it's probably looking more around kind of four liters of oxygen or less to get them out of our ICU. Um, and again, there's not so that these patients don't have any unstable or sustained arrhythmias for more than 24 to 48 hours. For those, of the, for those patients who are on dialysis, they have to be able to tolerate intermittent dialysis from a hemodynamic st standpoint. Um, as I'd mentioned kind of earlier, you know, again, these COVID-19 positive patients have tended to remain in our ICU setting a little bit longer than our typical critical care patients. I think mostly this is because we don't have a step-down unit per se uh, where these patients go. So, so if they met sort of a step-down unit criteria, they would end up remaining in the ICU. Um, most of the patients we have discharged out of our ICU unit have gone to our floor COVID units. Um, we have discharged a few uh, to uh, a long-term acute care facility. Um, about, I would say about two or three of those patients. Um, again, the criteria for acceptance has been pretty much specific to the uh, facility that's accepting. And most of these patients are what we call sort of in the recovery phase, meaning they're kind of um, have improved from the acute uh, critical illness and have received maybe COVID-specific uh, therapies. They can still be um, COVID positive um, at some of these facilities, but um, if they are still COVID positive, they ask that they are that the patients are at least afebrile for a period of about three days or, or more. Um, some of the barriers I think that we've had in terms of getting our patients out of the ICU, again, I kind of alluded to this earlier, is the bed capacity. So um, we have two COVID units uh, that are in our um, non-ICU uh, tower. Uh, each of those units has 16 beds per unit. Um, again, it's really not, it's not really compatible for a true kind of step down. So most of these patients need to be meet floor criteria in terms of their oxygen requirements and their hemodynamics. Um, we do keep all of these patients on telemetry uh, on the floor, uh, which has been kind of helpful in terms of kind of mitigating if people then sort of later develop uh, recurrent arrhythmias and whatnot. Uh, some of the other issues I think um, that some of my hospitalist uh, colleagues have mentioned in terms of transitioning out of the ICU um, one of these being the de-escalation of um, thromboembolic kind of prophylaxis. So when people are critically ill with COVID-19 uh, infection, we tend to be a little bit more um, aggressive in terms of our uh, anticoagulation. And so there's not really strict guidelines since this is sort of a new, um, a new kind of area that we've all been sort of uh, discovering kind of as we take care of these patients. And so um, this has been a little bit of a tricky um, in terms of those who don't have actually confirmed diagnosis of an actual um, venous thrombosis. Uh, so um, we have a great kind of hematology and a COAG team here at Duke that have been sort of helping guide us in terms of how we de-escalate that for those specific patients. The other thing that I think that's been a little bit of an issue as well is, is that a lot of these folks uh, tend to have a prolonged kind of ICU, kind of post-ICU delirium. Uh, they're older, so they're already at higher risk of having delirium. You can imagine they've been isolated with no family, patients coming in and out of their rooms and the full guard, the spacesuit garb. Um, so that's been a little bit uh, tricky in terms of getting people um, to the floor as well um, and making sure that they have, uh, you know, the nursing is not as, it's not one-to-one -one like it is in the ICU. So sometimes this sort of limits their transition out. Um, and then uh, you know, we sort of limit the lab draws uh, while they're on the floor, um, so it's not as frequently as, as they, they're getting uh, in the ICU. And then we are actually able to have physical therapy and occupational therapy work with the patients. Uh, we have a specific kind of COVID team that 
has been working with these patients both in the ICU and on the floor. So that's actually been a really uh, good thing that we've been able to do. Next slide. Great. So does your facility have specific criteria for readiness um, of a COVID-19 positive patient to be discharged from the hospital? Yeah, so I think this has been uh, an evolving process, I think, for all of us, because I think it's been uh, probably the evolution of it has been, you know, very much reflective of uh, COVID-19 testing and the availability of that. And sort of as we've learned more and more about the um, uh, the trajectory of the illness. Um, we don't have set guidelines. So you have to be on no oxygen. Um, you have to be able to walk X amount of feet. It's really up to the primary, um, the hospitalist uh, that's taking care of that patient, you know, and they feel like they're medically stable and that they have the appropriate discharge needs. I would say most of the patients that we have discharged from the floor have gone home. Um, and those that do go home, we actually do have a, um, a specific COVID-19 kind of discharge instructions that gets printed out with their after-visit sum summary. And it has a lot of um, unique uh, uh, guidelines, I think, for the patient and for their um, healthcare uh, home, uh, sorry, for their family members. Um, specifically, we have this 10 plus 3 guideline for home isolation. And it and generally just asks the patients to self-isolate, meaning they cannot go out, can't go get their groceries, they need to stay at home for at least 10 days, really since their symptoms first appeared. Now, again, that 10 day period could certainly um, kind of pass while they're in the hospital. Um, so then we kind of add the extra three days sort of kind of after recovery, meaning um, they're not no longer having fevers, um, off antipyretics, and then their respiratory symptoms. So cough, sniffles, any of that kind of stuff has gone away. So we sort of use that sort of a general guideline. Um, we ask them to enroll into the Duke Pandemic Response Network, which is really uh, through the Duke uh, Community Health. I think it's a great thing. So I think most patients are getting enrolled in this before they get discharged. Um, and essentially this includes like a follow-up telephone call to kind of check in and how they're doing. And it also kind of helps them keep track of their symptoms and provide guidelines. So if they're having worsening symptoms or if they're unsure if they should be able to go out in public and whatnot. Um, and then there is specific guidance for uh, members of the household on, on sort of isolating and self-monitoring. And there's, there, those are different depending on if the family members are going to stay in the house with the COVID-19 patient, a positive patient, or if they're going to be isolating elsewhere. Um, we have been able to successfully set up um, home oxygen and home health, um, PT and OT and nursing care. Um, I think there was a lot of um, barriers initially um, and, and kind of some hesitation and hysteria, but, but there are certain companies that are case management um, folks have been able to identify uh, that have been able to set up these, these things, which I think has been really helpful in getting people out of the hospital. Um, and then most people who are going home, it looks like their family members are coming to pick them up. So essentially we, uh, a nurse kind of wheels them down to the front. Uh, they have to wear a mask and uh, the, their family member will kind of loop in our little driveway and kind of pick them up there. Um, for those who don't have transportation, we actually do have two taxi companies that are willing to transport. Again, this can be a little bit of a barrier too, because sometimes the drivers just decide that they don't want to take these people home. So, um, so, but we've, we've been able to at least identify a lot of potential barriers and been able to kind of work around it a little bit. Good. Next slide. Um, just kind of following up. So we, we are sending a few of these patients to skilled nursing facilities. I think um, the biggest uh, hindrance has been those who previously did not come from a skilled nursing facility and now need one. 
Um, these have been the most difficult patients to discharge. Um, some skilled nursing facilities are accepting their COVID-19 uh, COVID positive patients, but they're, again, they're typically those that already have outbreaks of COVID-19 and or if they're a pre previous resident of that nursing facility. Um, we have run into a couple of cases where some folks are just like, I don't want to go to a nursing facility at discharge, and they've elected to go home. Um, those tend to kind of get readmitted. It seems like it's not predominantly for respiratory issues. It seems mostly for probably nursing care and I think probably uh, debility and deconditioning. Um, and then there's been a lot of, I think, um, both on the, uh, from family members when they're going home and even when they're going to these nursing facilities about whether or not we retest or not. Um, and that's sort of been a up and down process. So um, I kind of won't comment on specifics of that. Um, we have been able to get pe pe um, people set up for dialysis, um, both continuing dialysis and new starts. So um, most of the dialysis centers in our area have sort of um, gotten together and are cohorting patients at kind of one or two locations. So we have been able to get people dialysis chairs. Um, again, this kind of prolongs their hospital stay and certainly can contribute to delay in discharge. And then there's been a couple of issues with sort of new BiPAP or CPAP start um, at discharge. I think this is hard to do pre-COVID era, so it's continued to be quite difficult uh, in the COVID era as well. So what will your outpatient follow-up for your COVID positive 19 patients involve at your facility? So most folks, it's looking like they have a they have a telehealth, which will either be include a, a televideo or a telephone visit with their primary care provider. If they don't have one, we have set them up with someone. Uh, and that's been probably, I would say, on average between we're able to get them a telehealth visit within like two to four weeks, I would say, of discharge. Um, and then we now have this uh, COVID-19 kind of post-hospitalization kind of pulmonary clinic. Um, and uh, myself, along with uh, several other of my colleagues, are part of this. So this is a it's really a collaboration and it's actually kind of more of a clinical slash uh, uh, research kind of clinic uh, so that we can kind of collect relevant clinical data and biological samples on these, on these uh, East Coast COVID uh, patients. Um, these clinics are actually at multiple sites. So within the two hospitals that we have here in Durham and, and various clinics, and then also uh, including clinics in Raleigh. So um, we actually have one of our, Coordinators um, and staff assistants will reach out to these patients um, either prior to their discharge or af right after discharge and will contact them via the phone and ask them if they would like to see a pulmonologist A and B, would they be willing to kind of consent into participation in clinical research? And then if they say yes, then we'll e-consent them over the phone. Um, we ask them which site they would like to be to, they would like to go to, and then we get the, to coordinate it and set it up with the MD. Um, and then typically they're going to have a follow-up appointment with a pulmonologist about six weeks uh, after their discharge from the hospital. At that time, they'll also get a COVID, a repeat COVID nasopharyngeal swab, uh, which we will order ourselves. So the pulmonologist who's going to see that patient will order it. Um, and then if it comes back positive, so we do this before their, a couple of days before their actual clinic visit. If it comes back positive, then we just schedule a telehealth visit for that time. Um, and then, uh, we kind of have them do a couple of questionnaires and kind of go through things. Um, and then we end up sort of retesting them a little bit later at a different time course, and hopefully it's negative, and then we can bring them back um, in person. If it's negative, then we do an in-person visit where they um, provide, you know, uh, 
blood samples, um, fill out a couple questionnaires, we get another couple uh, objective data points. And essentially, if most of these people are enrolled, we hope to have a cohort that we can kind of follow um, over, over the next 12 months or so with kind of um, different intervals. Um, certainly, if anyone's interested in our protocol, this sort of just got approved um, recently here at Duke um, or would like to collaborate and sort of maybe potentially a multi um, site kind of collaboration. Um, you can certainly reach out to myself, my email's there, and then really Loretta Quay, um, Coral Giovacchini, Coral Day is her main name, but um, they've been sort of the two spearheads of that as well as Brian Craft. So um, folks can certainly email me and I can certainly um, uh, get you in touch with who you need to get in touch with. Great. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to transition um, to the discharge of the COVID patient using a teamwork approach. And so um, we'll turn this over to Dr. Hickey. So how do you include all members of the healthcare team in the discharge process for your COVID positive patients? I'm Adrienne Hickey, not Dr. Hickey. I'm a respiratory therapist. I specialize with the acute care services, um, mostly the ICU to floor patients. And one of the things that I want to introduce you to is actually the size of our hospital and why this teamwork is so important. If you could show the next slide, please. Um, we have a College of Medicine, a College of Health Professions, a College of Nursing, a College of Graduate Studies, a Research Foundation, and a hospital system, which includes two hospitals, our downtown campus and our community hospital. Um, so that teamwork really needs to go across our entire institution through all of those um, all of those buildings just to make sure that we have the same teamwork. When uh, respiratory is involved in in the discharge planning process, if you can go to the next slide, um, number one is always going to be that communication with the team members that are involved. Identifying those team members usually is the case manager, social worker, bedside nurse. Um, physical therapy, respiratory therapy, occupational therapy, and a lot of times pharmacy too. That's just the basic list that you potentially could have to need. When you need those ancillary members that maybe you don't contact on a daily basis, someone from that team is going to know right away who you need to call. Um, for the respiratory um, aspects of the discharge of the critical care patient, some things that we are always thinking about is optimizing any maintenance medication, um, making sure that patients know how to use their MDIs, how to use their home nebulizers, um, and even how they're going to administer those um, medications when they're on the floor safely so that other people aren't exposed or um, at risk of spreading any COVID-19. Some of the long-term complications that we've seen with COVID-19 are actual permanent airways, someone who was unable to wean off of the ventilator, um, and that is a huge complication to any kind of discharge therapy. They might require a home ventilator, a long-term care facility that they never had before, or that permanent airway, a trach or a stoma. One of the things that I can talk about that did not change with the critical care patient or the home care patient ready for discharge is the oxygen requirement evaluations. So with the HOMO2 evaluation, it's really um, something that we do on a daily basis. We might need to evaluate how someone's O2 um, criteria has changed, what their dependency or needs are now. That being said, we would always start them on room air. 
we would evaluate them to see how their saturation looked when they were just doing nothing laying in the bed on room air. That would be at rest. If that saturation was found to be lower than 88%, they would have oxygen increase in increments of one liter at a time um, until their saturation rose above 88%. When they start moving, they would then keep that continuous oximetry on that finger and if it starts to decrease again with some level of exertion, that is when um, they would start adding oxygen again. Usually readiness for home oxygen is under six liters per minute. And that's done with the easiest application of um, oxygen mask. We use the proprietary oxy mask made by South Medic or a simple nasal cannula. Um, who does all the observations in that, in that uh, in the observation of saturation, it's every single team member. So it's easy to say that respiratory is going to evaluate someone for their HOMO too. Maybe their limitations of exertion require more than just the respiratory therapist to exert them. That means that we would involve the bedside nurse. We could involve PT and OT. We could involve um, the tech on the floor because that person needs help when they're toileting. Those are all people that can actually observe and participate in this HOMO2 discharge process. When they started, they were in the bed, they needed no oxygen, they started to get up to go to the toilet and suddenly they dropped to 88%. Can someone call respiratory? Absolutely. Here's your one liter nasal cannula. We'd keep monitoring. If they needed more oxygen, we'd be happy to put it on. And that process was all of those people involved. Um, another, Another, another oximetry test that we do, and it's actually been like a, um, a consequence that we weren't able, didn't really foresee. People were coming in for COVID, and then we were finding their other comorbidities that they might have had that went along with the COVID. So that being said, overhand oximetry has been shown to be very, very effective with some of these COVID patients that had these rapid unexpected desaturations and they were happening at nighttime after those started to resolve a tiny bit then they were still having them with no symptoms of distress but the nurse was saying i heard that patient snoring a whole whole lot <laughs> that might mean that they need an overnight sleep study again here the nurse hears the snoring the respiratory therapist has set up the oximetry now we're calling case management the next day our social workers the next day to make sure that that person can get that outpatient sleep study. Um, it's so automatic, it's almost hard for us to describe because it happens on every single one of our patients in the discharge process. Do you wanna go to the next slide? Sure, so what criteria are you looking for in these cases being discharged and or transferred to the floor step down unit? So, it's really that constant observation and it's really counting on those team members every single time. Um, it's the tolerance and level of dyspnea while maintaining an SpO2 greater than or equal to 90. This is determined by the level of oxygen that they need to maintain that saturation and what is the actual observation that we're making. Is it on continuous oximetry? Um, they're never staying above 90%. Or is it when they do start having those exertional moments, you're finding that they're desaturating and needing some of that oxygen. That's from the ICU to the step-down floor. Transfer from the step-down floor 
is significantly impacted by the activity tolerance and the oxygen requirement. It goes absolutely right back to that HOMO2 eval. We're constantly doing it all of the time. Although it's called a HOMO2 eval, it's really just an oxygen, oxygenation eval to make sure that the person's getting the optimal um, oxygen for those saturation issues. Some of the other things that we've seen is the severity of deconditioning in the presence of their illness, level of intervention required, and no to recovery as close to baseline status as are indicators of next level of care. The most, um, the most care that they might need by, would be a skilled nursing facility versus going home with their family or family services. Really what is happening is, is that when people go to the hospital, they don't realize how much work they might need while, after, while they are in the hospital. Um, we have that entire team at all times. It is um, coordination of care that is actually the hardest thing to organize for the patient. When physical therapy comes for a flow transport, transfer and says, hey, let's get up and walk today, and they say, oh, it looks like you might need some oxygen, Respiratory therapy is always involved in the moving around of that patient. They'll optimize that oxygenation for the patient to make sure that they can participate in that physical therapy. Um, hand in hand with how much are they requiring to keep their saturation is how often do we have to actually check it? Is the person starting to have subjective, um, I can't breathe, can we slow down, is this too much work? The, the actual observation amount is going to affect those factors. Maybe they only need a home oximeter when they're um, on their, when they're walking down the hallway or when they have to go get their mailbox. A little more exertion than if they're just watching their television. A patient that improves in their oxygenation needs, usually doesn't um, have to require as much oxygen. So we can use that oximeter monitor in the opposite way. It's not only for the decompensating patient. If someone were to get discharged from the hospital and walk out to their mailbox every single day and find that they're getting less and less with the subjective um, problems, then they could potentially use their oximeter and say, oh, great, I can decrease my oxygen or I need to call my doctor and see if I need to wear this much oxygen. One of the next slide, may I have the next slide, please? Yeah, so on your patients that are requiring DME, um, how have you managed this for those COVID-positive patients? Um, one of the best things that we were able to work with as far as oxygen, respiratory-associated DME is that nothing really changed as far as what they could potentially need at home. We were able to optimize um, our, normal O2, our normal O2 delivery devices uh, and workout devices for pulmonary hygiene. Um, number one being a nasal cannula, the easiest device, but then setting up those HOMO2 devices, that would all be managed by our caseworkers, um, the case managers and social workers. They would say how much do they need? They know exactly what kind of device that person can have in their home. Um, some of the other things that are provided by respiratory, but also reinforced with teaching, not just from respiratory, but from physical therapy and from our case managers and social workers, would be our nebulizers, um, Inspirex and Acapella. And then we also have these care kits, these COVID care kits. These were developed by the case managers. They're sent home with the patients to, they're called comfort kits. They're sent home with the patients and this is for telemouth 
telehealth <laughs> monitoring for follow-up. It's not necessarily that that number is the most, the most relied on number, what is your saturation. It's more that the patients are actually following up with what has your saturation been? Have you been checking it? Um, the care kits also had Tylenol, a thermometer, an oximeter, just so that they could um, have something with a goal for what that telehealth visit checkup. The rapid desaturation was also able to be identified with these um, oximeters. Uh, the next item that I wanted to talk about is some of the patient-specific education. And this is our actual self-proning policy that we came up with um, for non-intubated patients. We found that we were able to give some of the same guidance to the patients that were discharged from home um, to make sure that they maintain that prone positioning in the non-intubated -adult, non adult patient. So really any patient that is, um, <clears throat> should be able to move independently, should not have multi-organ failure, and that they potentially have a reversible lung injury. Most likely they do because they're getting discharged to home. Um, no hypercapnia, which they wouldn't necessarily be able to measure at home, but that was one of our criteria that we could still include in the hospital. Uh, normal mental status, and no anticipation of a difficult airway. Anybody who really could do that, they probably could flip themselves over in the bed. And so they were instructed to ha have prone positioning um, for certain times during the day by putting pillows under their hips um, and then just really kind of getting comfortable with the patient laying on their stomach and their arms and pillow in a manner so that they're, you know, they're kind of resting on their, on their forearms. That was, um, self-proning and I'd be happy to answer more questions about that. And then uh, lab draws at home. There are some labs that patients can draw on themselves so they would need the follow-up patient-specific information in order to um, follow up with their telehealth medicine. And another highlight that I want to highlight for the, as far as the team is the meds to beds program that we have at our institution. It is a outpatient pharmacy medication dispensary in which the patients can get their meds that they potentially need for their discharge delivered right to their right to their room before they actually leave the hospital um, it promotes medication adherence and supports a same tra safe transmission from hospital to home so when a patient is admitted they are introduced to this meds to beds policy um, and it is a really great program that everybody knows about and everybody talks about it. It's a pharmacy program, but the bedside nurse is asking the patient if they'd be interested in meds to beds. The case manager, the social worker, the respiratory therapist, anybody that walks in that room might say, hey, are you interested in having your medications filled? I know I ask it every time someone gets an MDI or an um, MDI or nebulizer. So patients have the option to opt out at any time and again, it's that entire team. They can say, you know, I talked to the pharmacist this morning, but I want to tell you I'm not interested in that meds to beds. The communication with our teams is so important that they can opt out at any time to any team member. Um, the pharmacist also will come to the bedside at the request of any team member. If the social worker calls the pharmacist and says, I think this person might need a little bit more help, they can. 
the respiratory therapist can say, I taught all the nebulizers, but could you reinforce with some of their other medications? It's that teamwork approach. We have to get this person ready to succeed at home. Um, the teamwork needed and demonstrated every single time with all of these patients is super duper important because they're going home with quarantine guidelines um, and they really want to identify with a healthcare provider so we make sure that we are available to them all the time um, I'm so sorry I think that was it I meant to end my sentence a little bit faster <laughs> that's okay thank you for sharing um, thank you so we're going to move on to the next phase of um, an LTAC, a long-term acute care facility. And um, Dr. Mendoza will speak to us about um, his facility here for just a second, and then I'll start with the questions. So I'll go ahead and let you start, Andrew. Great, thank you. So if, uh, next slide, please. So um, in regards to a long-term acute care transitional care hospital, I think it's important to understand what exactly the role the LTAC plays in the critical illness recovery of a COVID uh, positive patient who has entered, entered the healthcare continuum through either through an ER, ultimately ended up in an ICU potentially, or even on a med search floor, never uh, entering the ICU, but still has, still is COVID positive and has either multiple comorbidities or an acute reason to be hospitalized. So the, the important aspects of that is that a long-term acute care hospital is that, an acute care hospital where patients come and stay for a longer period of time. And this is the important role that they played. And I think what you'll find is in states that have uh, long-term acute care hospitals, they serve the important purpose of providing decompressive bed capacity um, uh, needs for those ICUs that were heavily active with COVID-related uh, patients and that care transitioning, where do they go next? They still uh, have a high degree of a, uh, uh, acute care need, but who can take them and who can manage the multiple complexities would come with that. In San Antonio, um, our healthcare systems in San Antonio, um, two level one traumas, three comprehensive stroke centers, um, multiple systems in there, for-profit, not-for-profit. And they made the decisions that in a multi-hospital system, typically one hospital within their system would be the cohorting hospital for those COVID-positive patients. And given that, with all the elective surgeries, this, that, and the other, that had, had, um, had kind of went um, quite low, those particular cohorted hospitals all of a sudden had capacity issues. Where and how do we transition? Next slide, please. So one of the important roles that uh, uh, post-acute medical in San Antonio decided was we needed to be a proactive partner with our acute care facilities for a couple of things. One, we're members of the Emergency Management Council where all these uh, level one trauma and comprehensive stroke centers participate and determine how patients are routed during emergency and pandemic timeframes. And as an important partner in that, we had to decide how do we participate to support our care partners because this is gonna be uh, quite a challenge knowing that the dispositioning of patients 
to lower levels of care would be a barrier for many, especially trying to go to skilled nursing, um, acute rehab, or even home. And so one thing that we did is uh, post-acute uh, medical, our facility within the medical center district of San Antonio is uniquely poised because it not only had 62 acute care beds, but we have a licensed 10 bed ICU that has nocturnus with intensivist coverage. And then we developed specifically to support our partners, a 30 bed COVID unit. And in order to develop that COVID unit, it did require some fast uh, um, construction uh, to ensure those, those units were contained with uh, entry only barriers, things of that nature, all private rooms, and that the staff, once they entered the, the contained unit, um, were not um, going into other areas because they were in their unit. So not only the PPE relative to support that, but it was an important measure and an important, an important uh, decision that we made to sure that we could support that. Next slide, please. One of the things that we saw in looking at our, at our partners is that the patients that typically uh, were coming to our facility from our acute care partners were not so much the patients that were very stabilized off the vent, but we were actually getting patients um, post ARDS still on the vent um, and still requiring a high degree of care. And one of the things that we developed was recognizing what type of providers are we going to ensure that these patients are able to be either extubated or liberated from the ventilator, and then um, depending on what other uh, modalities of needs that they had. Uh, we had patients that were still coming in on pressors that we were titrating, um, patients with chest tubes um, for various reasons. And so one of the decisions that we made with our, with our medical staff was that any COVID patient that admitted into our unit would be managed by an intensivist only. Now, if they required a consultant for um, dialysis, of course, the nephrologist, but we wanted to minimize the number of providers and we wanted to ensure that our medical staff was readily able to develop those core competencies of managing the sick population with a novel virus and do so in a safe manner so it would prohibit any cross-contamination or minimize and mitigate those issues. And just kind of give you a sense of the folks that actually played a role in this, uh, our critical care pulmonary intensivists, infectious disease, obviously very critical. Uh, we enjoy a partnership uh, with the University of Texas Health Science Center and uh, one of the principal investigators for remdesivir in, in our South Texas um, was a, a participant in, the, in our development and as, as well as our care. Um, we had patients that were coming in that required neurocritical care, of course, neuro, PMNR, um, and for those with, with concomitant wounds that resulted in this because they, they were having clots and required uh, other level of modality, we even had vascular surgery um, uh, support this. And just kind of give you an idea, some of the things that we had to provide was not only the um, pressors, ventilation, but we do have CT and invasive radiology from our academic partner in-house and they would, would assist us with those peg placements. Um, so that way when the acute care hospital was transitioning, we would not be a barrier because we needed, a, we needed to wait on a peg um, being done in the acute care hospital. Next slide, please. So will you share your admissions process with us? Sure. 
So to kind of get an understanding of the admission process, the state of Texas had developed a, um, a hospital to post-acute facility transfer guide um, that was required on every patient um, that was either COVID positive or a person under um, investigation for, for COVID um, uh, illness. And when we looked at uh, kind of our data, what we identified is 95% of the patients came from the acute care hospital. These patients typically came from an ICU setting uh, with a positive PCR, and their diagnosis was either reflective of respiratory failure, sepsis, and required some level of mechanical ventilation during that period of time. And in the graphic next to you, this was the state-mandated uh, document that would have to accompany every patient, and it would have to have a clinical assessment attested either by the uh, attending physician or the um, nurse uh, for that patient. Next slide, please. And then the discharge process from your facility, either going home or to a step-down place within. Sure. So one of the things that was unique, and um, at least for our marketplace, is that our emergency management agency, um, Health and Human Services, FEMA, um, and the Pandemic Response Unit, uh, was that only one skilled nursing facility in our county was designated to accept um, COVID positive or COVID post-positive patients. And given that, as I think Dr. Matthews had mentioned earlier, trying to um, disposition a patient who is known COVID positive, you can imagine, um, posed a unique challenge. Um, we were fortunate is that uh, within, our, uh, within our system, um, we did have or do have an inpatient uh, rehabilitation uh, facility. And what we developed was what we call the COVID clear. And so what does that mean? So as part of that process, we wanted to make sure that before a patient was, was ultimately uh, able to either make it home or to skilled nursing, that they needed to have two negative uh, PCR tests and they would not have to be on any fever reducing agents prior to, they'd get the nasal swab, we'd do one test, 24 hours later, we'd do the next test. And what that provided us was that during, during based on symptomology, based on addi additional factors, many of these patients, if you looked at their timeline from when they entered a healthcare continuum until they finally were prepared to leave our continuum, they either had critical illness myopathy, um, functional quadruparesis, other matter, and of course, uh, significant nutritional deficits. And one of the things that we had developed, uh, um, and I think this is something unique uh, to um, what uh, other large centers are doing, is the development of, of what we call that post-ICU syndrome, that PICS follow-up. How do you do that? How do you do that in the next level of care and then in the outpatient setting? And for us, our typical disposition was the inpatient rehabilitation um, setting and with our part with our with our Earths uh, Warm Springs in San Antonio to make sure um, that the A they would get that second negative test during that stay. And typically, a patient in 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 a inpatient rehabilitation, it's roughly a 12 to 14 day length of stay. By that time, we would get the second negative 
we would have maximized their prior level of function and then could disposition them ultimately to either their skilled nursing facility or their home. Um, I think what, when we looked at our population, um, it was interesting to see that we had treated the young of 23 years old, intubated, ARDS, plasma, remdesivir, to the 101-year-old functional, um, independent, assisted living patient who walked out of the hospital. Um, so it was very interesting to see that kind of spread of individuals that we treated from ventilator to symptomatic uh, positive, um, but never materializing to that next step, which gives you, the, gives you pause to think that maybe they're pretty good for convalescent plasma donation. Um, next slide, please. So to kind of give you a schematic of what that direct admit process for the, for the COVID positive patient was, uh, we would get requested for a clinical review. Typically, this was initiated by the attending in either the ICU or the med surge unit. Uh, we send a clinical navigator, nurse, therapist um, to go do the evaluation um, that they meet the medical criteria. Um, initial medical criteria, of course, COVID positive, but what are the other issues affecting that? Uh, we secured the order. Um, for admission into the long-term acute care hospital. And what was really uh, unique um, during all this time is that both Medicare and many of the payers um, established waivers immediately if a patient was COVID positive. So if a COVID is positive, that was um, automatic for certain insurers like Aetna, Cigna, to, and United to say um, no preauthorization is required. That patient could immediately admit because their diagnosis satisfied their medical need. And ultimately, we would assign the patient to the intensivist. We would ensure those peer-to-peer -peer handoffs. We identified upfront any special needs identified that needed to be in place prior to transfer. And then, of course, they admitted. And then upon discharge, um, we ensured that the outpatient process, of course, through the PICS clinic to ensure that they do recover. And of course, through all this, um, doing the um, multidisciplinary rounds to ensure that um, patients are projecting to the level of care as required in the timeframes based on their medical need. Thank you for sharing your, your process. We do have a few questions that are on the um, question and answer. And so um, a few of them have already been answered by typing, so that's perfect. Um, but I do have a few questions from the um, attendees. And so one of those, and again, I'm just going to pose this for all of you. Um, we've made mention a couple of times about using home nebulizers. And so our attendees are concerned that this is a relative contraindication, particularly to COVID. Um, due to the risk that, you know, respiratory droplets are generated. And so what would a response be to utilizing home nebulization? I'd be happy to answer that. Thank you. Really, with the optimization of that, op of that nebulizer would be on the case dependent. If they came in using a home nebulizer and they were to return to using that same home nebulizer, that would be appropriate. Maybe with their stay, when we did optimize the MDI treatment for them, they found that they liked that a lot better. Again, it's all about that conversation with the case manager, the pharmacist to say, 
hey, they like the MDI better. Can we stick with that? Um, as far as using a nebulizer at home, usually you quarantine with the same people. If you were using your nebulizer around the same four people when you came into the hospital, you'd return to those same four people using that same nebulizer. As long as you're not sharing it on the street, it should optimize the droplets and um, what you're actually spreading in your own home. So if optimizing and changing that medication isn't the best thing for you, you could continue to use your home nebulizer. Thank you. Would anybody else like to add? All right. So um, there's a few other questions that have been asked. Um, one of those is, um, I guess, also back to you, Adrian, um, dealing with self-proning. Um, where are you using self-proning as an outpatient? Um, as an outpatient, it's for any discharge patient. If they're finding that they have had the uh, COVID-19 diagnosis and they are having some shortness of breath, they're having some of those oximeter um, desaturations that are observing at home, they could absolutely just use it in mind. We need to flip ourselves over when you're on your couch or in your bed. Now's a good time to kind of flip over. Um, and the time requirements would really be up to the person. The telehealth medicine would be able to guide and say, hey, you should probably flip over every two hours. Are you doing that? Does that answer where is an outpatient or were they asking more specific than that? No, I think that I think that answers the question. Okay, thank good. you. So, a couple other questions. Um, one is, what is the purpose of a six-week post-discharge swab? Um, patients are still um, antigen positive after six weeks. What do you consider them? When do you consider them not contagious? Do we know? I can answer that. Um, so, I, I think this is a really challenging question to answer because. Um, I think a lot of people have different opinions about this. Um, we also know that there are a lot of asymptomatic patients who test positive for COVID. So the six-week mark was just sort of, I, I, if I recall correctly, it was sort of an arbitrary kind of time before to kind of allow patients to get out of the hospital. Um, you know, a lot of it also ended up on sort of um, as we're starting to reopen clinics and whatnot. So we, you know, we know that uh, typically we like to see people within sort of four to six weeks post-hospitalization. Um, and so that was kind of the six-week mark that we picked. I think probably, I think the, the goal of collecting this data and having this outpatient kind of cohort is to sort of see, you know, who is positive at six weeks, who is still symptomatic at six weeks. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a hard question to answer and hopefully we'll be able to collect enough data um, both at our site or, or, you know, kind of nationally to, to sort of better answer that question. I think it's, it's just really hard. Um, Again, I think if people are symptomatic and still testing positive, um, we will likely continue to do sort of telehealth visits with them um, and find some way of getting some of the objective data in a safe, um, uh, in a safe way. Um, I think it's hard because, you know, these people are going to be coming to a pulmonary clinic where you're going to have other patients who are a very vulnerable patient population as well. So we, we want to sort of limit their exposure to other folks as well. I hope that answers the question. I think it, I think it, again, this is a challenging time. I think that um, many, you know, depending on where you're at across the country, what your um, infection control docs are doing, you know, and, and the ID got groups on how we're conversing about what's, you know, best practice. And, and until we, like you said, do the research um, at the end of the day, um, we, we're going with what we know at this moment. 
Yeah, so, I, I think it'll probably evolve kind of like, you know, we don't repeat test for influenza, right? So um, I think at some point, it'll probably evolve into that once we sort of have treatment or have a vaccine. I think whether someone tests positive or not, but I, again, that's, that's way down the road. Um, I, I wanted to sort of something that I didn't mention in my talk was that, you know, my facility was really lucky because we did not have a surge. So I think that that helped facilitate a lot of transitions out of the ICU, transitions home, et cetera. Um, we kind of got just regular kind of spurts and kind of continuation of that. And then we had a lot of, we have a federal prison that's not far from here. So we had a huge outbreak at the federal prison. So those patients actually, um, they have two medical units at the prison. And so a lot of those folks were able to go back and they were taking COVID positive patients back um, to the prison. So that facilitated a lot of our discharges as well. Um, so I just wanted to kind of make that clear because that was a little bit unique to our experience. True. You have an interesting patient population, yeah. definitely different than the others. Um, it's, it's exciting to me that, you know, we have three different cities that we are discussing and have shared experiences about discharging each of those unique um, patient populations. Um, we have time for um, maybe one more question here. And so one of those, and again, this could be all three of you, is that um, a group is concerned about the time frame of cleaning the rooms between patients. And I don't have an answer for this, and maybe you all do, um, is that after discharging a patient from an ICU room or any other room who is COVID positive, how much time are you allowing before another patient comes in to consider that room safe? So I can speak from an LTAC perspective. Um, our turnover for a COVID positive room requires a terminal clean. That terminal clean from wall to ceiling, um, that sort of thing, you're talking a two hour um, turnover uh, minimum for, for that room to ensure that we properly sanitize it. And, um, and of course, even uh, when a patient leaves the COVID unit, um, you know, it's being done in such a fashion to ensure that um, you know, their exit from the facility is done such that um, it doesn't go through common areas or non-COVID areas. And I can speak to um, the ICU. So we actually have, um, so in our ICU, um, you know, we have COVID patients in various different ICUs. So we're lucky that we have lots of different ICUs to house these folks. So um, most of them are in our medical ICU, which is where I round. Uh, it's got 24 beds and we have 16 COVID beds. The other eight are kind of uh, on a different hall. Um, and then the other overflow, uh, eight beds in our surgical ICU and eight beds in our neuro ICU. We had kind of picked the overflow because the, each ICU has eight uh, negative pressure rooms. So we wanted to optimize those first before having um, just regular ICU rooms where we use a HEPA filter. Um, in general, we allow the room. So once the patient leaves the room, uh, we allow it to air out for about 30 minutes. So nobody can go in there. Uh, for a period of half an hour. Uh, then we actually have um, EVS come in and clean the room. Um, and then we do our Trudy, which is like the UV light cleaning, um, which is probably another 30 to 45 minutes in and of itself. So um, it's probably, I would say, just depending on how rapidly our environmental services can be there and the availability of Trudy's, it's probably three to four hours before we turn over a bed in the ICU, which again can be more delayed kind of in care and placing of patients, but, but that's the safest sort of algorithm that we've come up with. 
Thank you. Well, we are just a couple seconds or minutes away from uh, four o'clock, and um, there is another question up, but I think that you've answered that in regards to the negative pressure rooms and some being negative pressure and some not, and so I think that we've addressed those. Um, if, would anybody like to have any final remarks? Anne, any final remarks? Um, first, just thank you for having me. It's, um, this has been fun and um, kind of getting to collaborate and kind of a, a talk about the hospital side of things is nice because I'm, I'm critical, I'm intensivist, so I usually just see that part of it. But um, I think this is just going to be an ongoing, evolving thing that we all are just going to have to learn, you know, just learning over the next couple of years. Um, I think the big thing is going to be probably... Um, uh, I think a lot of the questions are sort of as people transition out of the hospital, when do they need repeat testing? How long do they isolate? I think, you know, I had mentioned the 10 plus three. I think that's a very arbitrary thing. I think it's, you know, um, so, so I think this is just going to be a learning process. Yep. Oops. I agree. Um, Adrian, do you have any final comments? Um, I, you know, I kind of agree. I will say, is respiratory therapist. I think that respiratory therapists did a really like super great job with COVID patients. We're so used to this. It's our regular workflow. Um, new onset of sudden pulmonary diseases. And I have found that my team especially was able to rebound so quickly and just say, okay, we can take care of these patients. We know exactly what to do. Um, and I'm just super duper proud of our institution because they were able to mobilize so quickly. Great, absolutely. And then Andrew, any final comments about the topic? Sure. So I think one of the one of the things that I that I discovered during uh, the period of time uh, of the pandemic is that initially there was a stigma if a facility was cohorting COVID-related patients. Um, we saw that in our acute care partners that oh, we don't want to go to Hospital X because they have COVID patients there. And I think what was interesting is that um, the hospitals that took a leadership proactive role to upscale and prepare for this um, actually did very well. Um, and even they dedicated units that were separated, they were able to uh, amass the PPE that was required. They were able to ensure that, um, I will tell you, every intensivist in um, San Antonio uh, was quite busy. Um, our STRAC uh, emergency management uh, organization put out daily reports on the number of events in use, capacity, how many patients were on ECMO, um, all that information. And so it was really nice to see the collaboration uh, with all the health systems, profit, nonprofit, um, at this, there was no sense of um, we were all working for one common goal. And I think, you know, me personally from our organization, proud that uh, from an LTAC perspective, we were the only ones that, to, to take a stand to make sure that we, we were going to be a good partner and support this. And, it, you know, recognizing that uh, associated stigma, we felt it was important um, that we provided this necessary service and do it right. And, and I'm pleased to say that we've been successful with that. And I appreciate the opportunity uh, to speak with our colleagues at CHESS because uh, 
it's a testament to the evidence-based practice that we all um, stand for. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate all three of you taking time today to share your experience and um, your practices that you have been utilizing for discharging patients, rather that from the ICU um, out to the floor to a skilled nursing facility or to the long-term acute care facility and then home. Um, we have a lot of learning going on, and um, I look forward to seeing what our uh, what we end up see, what we end up doing in regards to research um, over the over this time frame, um, I would encourage all of you to uh, be looking for an email here in the future. Um, Chest will have this webinar uh, posted um, for us hopefully next Monday or Tuesday. And in the meantime, again, we do appreciate Chest and appreciate um, this evidence-based practice as best as we can with with what is going on with the pandemic. Thank you again for all of you participating. Have a good afternoon.